Mountain State Mysteries contains adult content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Mark. And I'm Courtney. And this is Mountain State Mysteries. Today, we want to tell you about one of West Virginia's most infamous cases, a case that has left everyone around the world scratching their head. This is the story of the Sauter children. George Sauter was born with the name Giorgio Sardu in Sardinia, Italy in 1895. He immigrated to the United States 13 years later with one older brother who we're going to call Leo who went back home as soon as both of the boys cleared customs at Ellis Island. For the rest of George's life, as he came to be known, he would not talk much about why he left his homeland. George would eventually find work on the railroads in Pennsylvania, carrying water and other supplies to workers in 1912. When George was 22, he registered for the Selective Service for the First World War, listing Michigan as his home. This record shows him working as a plumber's helper in Detroit. His draft record also documented that he would send money back to his family in Italy. After a few years, in the 1920s, he would move to West Virginia where he took a more permanent job as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia. He then started his own trucking company, initially hauling field dirt to construction sites and later hauling coal mind in the region. Jenny Lorlesa Cipriani was born on March 2, 1903 in Faggia, Italy, the second child of Joseph, Giuseppe, and Martha Martinia Cipriani. The family migrated to the United States in 1904. They also ended up spending some time in Pennsylvania before ending up in West Virginia. George and Jenny first met when he came into her father's store for some supplies in Smithers, West Virginia on November 4, 1922. They married in Charleston and lived in Smithers. There are some reports that Jenny was supposed to marry someone else as a part of a deal among Italian families. But the details of the story are very slim to none. The Sauters would settle in Fayetteville, West Virginia, an Appalachian town which had a small but active population of Italian immigrants in a two-story timber frame house two miles north of town. In 1923, they had the first of their ten children. George's business prospered and they became one of the most respected middle-class families around in the words of one of the local officials. However, George had strong opinions about many subjects, and he was not shy about expressing them, sometimes alienating people, in particular his strident opposition to Italian dictator Benito Mussolini had led to some strong arguments with other members of the immigrant community. 
The last of the Sauter children, Sylvia, was born in 1942. By then, their second oldest son, Joe, who was 21, had left to serve in the military during World War II. The following year, Mussolini was deposed and executed. However, George's criticism of the late dictator had left some hard feelings in town. There was a stranger who appeared at the home a few months before the fire back in the fall asking George if he had any hauling work. George would tell him to hold on and he noticed that the man followed him to the back of the house, pointed to two separate fuse boxes and said, this is going to cause a fire someday. George thought that that was very strange, especially since he had just had the wiring checked by the local power company which said it was in fine condition. Around the same time, there was a knock at the door and it was another man trying to sell the family life insurance and he became irate when George declined. Quote, your damn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. End quote. George brushed this off at the time and really didn't think anything about it. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, one of the last strange things that happened before the fire is that one of the Sodder's older sons recalled something weird. Just before Christmas, they noticed a man parked along U.S. Highway 21, intently watching the younger Sodder kids as they came home from school. Christmas of 1945 was going to be the first time the Sauter family would be together since World War II. John Sauter arrived back in Fayetteville the week before. However, Joe was held up at an army base in North Carolina and ended up missing Christmas. The oldest daughter, Marianne, had been working at the Walls Dime store in downtown Fayetteville, and she surprised the younger Sauter kids with new toys she had bought for them as Christmas gifts. The younger Sauter kids were so excited that they begged their mother to stay up past their bedtime and play with them. Around 10 p.m., Jenny told them that they could stay up a little later, as long as 14-year-old Maurice and 9-year-old Louie remembered to put the cows in and feed their chickens before going to bed. George and the oldest boys, John and George Jr., were already in bed because they had been working all day. After the kids told her they would take care of everything, Jenny took 3-year-old Sylvia to bed with her. Around 12.30 a.m. Christmas morning, Jenny woke up to the telephone ringing. She rushed into the office to answer it. There are a few different accounts of this call, but it is usually said that the caller was a woman who the Sauters did not know. The other account is that the woman asked for someone who had no reason whatsoever to be there, implying that the Sauters may have known this person. Jenny told the woman that she had the wrong number. The woman who called and apologized for disrupting them. Jenny accepted her apology and went to hang up. Just before she did, she heard a man let out a peculiar laugh or sound. Other accounts said that the woman laughed. Others will say that she heard a party in the background with glasses clinking. She hung up and was returning to bed. She noticed all the downstairs lights were turned on and all of the curtains were open. The front door was unlocked. She saw Marianne asleep on the couch 
in the living room and assumed that the other kids were upstairs in bed. She turned off the lights, closed the curtain, and locked the front door, then returned to bed. As Jenny started to doze off around 1 a.m., she heard one loud bang on the roof and then a rolling noise. An hour later, she was awoke again, this time by the heavy smoke coming into her room. When she woke up and saw George's office on fire around the telephone line and fuse box, the lights were still on when both parents ordered their children to leave the house and then ran out the front door. Marion woke up and ran to her parents' room where she found three-year-old Sylvia and picked her up. They made it outside and met their parents. At this point, John and George Jr. woke up and realized what was going on. Both parents and four of their children, Marianne, Sylvia, John, and George Jr. escaped the house. They tried to yell for the younger children upstairs, but heard no response. They tried to reach them in the stairwell, but it was impassable. John said in his first police interview after the fire that he went upstairs to alert his brothers and sisters sleeping there. Though later, he changed his story and said that he only called up there and did not actually see them. In efforts to save the rest of the Sauter children, George climbed up the wall of the house and broke open a window, cutting his arm in the process. He and his sons intended to use a ladder to get upstairs to rescue the other children, but for some reason, the ladder was not in its normal spot and they couldn't find it. They noticed a barrel of water and wanted to use it, to try to extinguish the fire, but the water was frozen solid. George then tried to pull both of his trucks that he used for his business up to the house so he could climb upstairs, but neither of the trucks would start even though they worked perfectly fine the day before. They ran back inside to use a phone. However, this time, the phone would not work. So Marianne ran to a neighbor's house to call the fire department. She ran to the house of Mr. and Mrs. Garfield Davis. Miss Davis attempted to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but she couldn't get the switchboard operator to respond. Around 1 a.m., Thomas E. Smith of Beckwith was driving from Beckley and drove past the solder home while it was burning. Smith drove by around the same time Jenny smelled smoke. Smith drove on searching for her phone to call the fire department. He stopped at a local place called Crass's Park and attempted to call, but he was told the phone was out of order. During the fire, someone noticed Lonnie Johnson in their garage, which was separate from the house. He was stealing a set of chain hoist from the ceiling of the building. It was later said that Johnson had assistance from Dave Atkins. Johnson would later admit to taking the hoist and tossing them over an embankment so he could return to pick them up later. A few days after the fire, George obtained warrants for the Johnson and Atkins, accusing them of Lawrence. Johnson failed to appear for his hearing and was later arrested. He pled guilty to the charges and paid a $25 fine. Atkins fled the area and shortly joined the army to avoid criminal charges. He spent two years in the army just so he wouldn't have to pay the $25 fine. The Sodders had no choice but to watch the house burn down and collapse over the next 30 to 45 minutes. 
They assume the other five children had perished in the fire. Some reports say that at least five different vehicles drove by the Sutter's home while it was on fire. There honestly could have been more. The reason why we're telling you this, that it plays a big fact in the story later on. Many of Fayetteville's volunteer firemen were still away at war. Others was out of town because of the holiday. The firemen who were in town were asleep, so it was hard to get a hold of them. Once they were finally reached, the fire department took eight hours to get to the solder home. Reports state that when the fire department got there, they hooked a pump up to a nearby creek and extinguished the remaining parts of the embers in the basement until the fire was fully put out. After this, Mr. Sauter was taken to the local hospital so they could tend to the cut on his arm. Marianne wrote an account of the night stating that the fire had completely burned out hours before and stated that some of the firemen did not arrive until 9 a.m. Chief Morris told George to leave the site undisturbed so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation. However, just four days after the fire, George and his wife could not bear the site anymore. So George bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site where the fire happened, covering it so they could put a memorial garden for the lost children. The local coroner conveyed an inquest the next day, which held that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring. Among the jurors was a man who had threatened George that his house would burn down and his children would be destroyed in retribution for his anti-Mussolini remarks. Death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30th. The local newspaper contradicted itself, stating that all of the bodies had been found, but then later on in the same story, that only one part of the body was recovered. On January 2nd, 1946, the Sodders held a funeral for the five children. George and Jenny were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral, although their surviving children did. In the spring of 1946, a few months after the fire, while Sylvia was playing outside, she found a small object that was green and described as possibly being a rubber or plastic with an end on it that seemed to be burned. The object was found on part of the property where it could have been rolled off the roof. If this is true, it matches up to some eyewitness reports of fireballs being thrown onto the roof. The object was shown to local military officials. According to them, the object looked like it could possibly be a pineapple or napalm device. A pineapple or napalm device. One question that came to mind while doing the research on this case is that could this have been the loud noise on the roof that Jenny heard? Another theory that came to light throughout the years is that the rubber object could have been a part of one of the toys Marianne purchased for the kids as a Christmas present. The Sodders hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley from the town of Gullybridge to look into the case. Tinsley informed the family that the insurance salesman who had threatened George over his anti-Mussolini remarks had been on the coroner's jury that rolled at the fire an accident. 
He also learned rumors around Fayetteville that despite his report to the Sauters that no remains had been found in the ashes, Morris had found a heart in which he later put into a metal box and buried it. Morris apparently confessed to his local minister, who in turn confirmed to George. George and Tinsley went to Morris and confronted him with the news. Morris agreed to show them where he buried the box. They took what they found to a local funeral director, who after examining it, told them that it was just a fresh beef liver that had never been exposed to fire. Morris said that he did this in hopes that the soldiers would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had died in the fire. One year later, Jenny Sauter was reading about a fire where seven people had died, including small children. What caught her attention is that the bodies were burned severely. There were still skeletal remains of everyone, including a three-month-old infant. Jenny shared the story to George, and this is when he decided that the children did not die in the fire. Around this time, Jenny would start doing some tests of her own. She began placing animal bones and meats in her kitchen stove to see if they would burn. She was always left with questions because the bones were turned to ashes, but there would still be remains left in the pile. In June of 1947, George and Jenny's oldest son, John, married 18-year-old Margaret Meadows from Heiko. Later that year, Joe Sauter married Clarice Louise Buckland from Harewood. Now we know you probably have questions on the fire. Some people believe that the children never went to bed. They were still on the first floor. They may have been lured out of the house by someone who entered the house through the unlocked doors, perhaps promising them with a Christmas present or possibly telling them that the house was on fire. In the book, No Direct Evidence, The Story of the Missing Solder Children by author Bob Bragg created a modified theory that could explain this. One, Miss Sauter said none of the children's chores were completed. Two, the same five who stayed up playing were the same five who disappeared. Three, that only a few remains were found if there were actually any remains. Four, the bones that were found in the 1949 excavation were found on the opposite end of the house to the boys' bedroom. Maurice may have been taken into another room and killed away from the other four so they would not panic and wake the others in the house. But this is countered by the fact that the bones found in 1949 showed no evidence to ever being exposed to fire. 5. A woman in Fayetteville told Miss Sauter that four of the children were taken. 6. Miss Ida Crutchfield, operator of the Alderson Hotel in Charleston, said only four of the children were in her hotel on Christmas morning. 7. If the children went to bed, why would they have not awakened Marianne from the sofa so she could have gone to bed as well? 8. If someone came into the house, they either lured the children out of the house or killed them in their beds, then carried them out. How could that have been done if the children were upstairs and they had to walk 
past Marianne, who was asleep downstairs on the sofa. One woman who had been watching the fire from the road says she has seen some of them peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. Another woman at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston says she has served them breakfast the next morning and noted the presence of a car with a Florida license plate in the rest stop's parking lot. In 1949, George saw a magazine photo of a group of young ballet dancers in New York City. One of them looked like his missing daughter, Betty. Jenny saw the photo and said, That's sis. You can see the photo on our website, mountainstatemysteriespodcast.com. To us, it looks like the girl they thought was Betty is in the front to the right. George drove all the way to New York, where he asked to see the girl himself, but his demands were refused. George also tried to get the FBI involved, what he considered to be a kidnapping. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover personally responded to his letter, quote, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be local character and does not come within investigation and does not come within investigative jurisdiction bureau, end quote. If the local authorities requested the bureau's assistance, he added, he would, of course, direct agents, but the Fayetteville police and fire departments refused to do so. During the spring of 1949, several citizens wrote to the Charleston Gazette expressing their feelings towards the case and making small contributions. Courtney, do you care to read them? Quote, Let's solve this mystery by starting a fund for the Sodders to raise approximately $1,500, which in 2023 would be $19,266.24 to finance a thorough investigation of the case by Thomas P. Brophy of New York City. Providing these children are living and can be found, this idea is certainly worth a little consideration. Just try to imagine the joy which would be experienced this Christmas, which has been missing for the past three, if their children are recovered, end quote. Lawrence R. Smith. Quote, I believe with all of my heart, they need a helping hand from every citizen of West Virginia. We don't have much of this world's goods, but we have our children that we love and we sympathize with the Sauter family so much that I'm sending our contribution to the fund for the service of an able man like Mr. Brophy. End quote. Mr. and Mrs. W. M. Price. Quote, I think that anyone in a position to help should do so, so that the anxious hearts of the Sodders might be relieved. It is a burden hard for them to bear. It is a fate worse than death, and I only hope and pray that everyone will help. Every donor will receive his reward from God. End quote. Mrs. George D. Miller. By May 1949, the Sauter Fund had only raised about $51. The rest of the summer was spent by trying to raise additional funds, but by August, contributions had all but stopped. 
In August of 1949, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to supervise a new search through the dirt at the house site. After a thorough search, artifacts including a dictionary that had belonged to the children and some coins were found. Several small bone fragments were unearthed, determined to have been human vertebrae, all from the same person. Quote, since the transverse recesses are refused, the age of the individual at death should have been 14 to 15 years. End quote, Newman's report said. Quote, conclusions from studying these bones, it can be unequivocally stated that these bones are identical with known human bones of the age 14 to 15 years and is probable with room for very little doubt that they belong to a child of this age. The bones show, the bones show no evidence of actual charring, which would indicate that they were not free within the fire and subject to high temperature. They, of course, could have been in the fire covered by flesh and consequently insulated from the higher temperatures associated with the fire. The question immediately arises as to why these bones should be found without the associated bones of the remaining portions of the skeleton, and consequently it would lead one to believe that the remaining portion of the skeletal necessitates the conclusion that they were forcibly removed from the remaining portion of the skeleton. Such a forcible dismemberment during life or even after a body has been subject to the fire of the intensity described would necessitate a considerable amount of force and dexterity on the part of an individual planning such a dismemberment. It would seem more reasonable that the remaining bones have been removed from the skeleton subsequent to the death of the individual at a time that interlacing ligaments and fibrous tissue had undergone degeneration, this feature therefore suggests that the bones were separated from the remaining portions of the skeleton at some time later and perhaps these bones were overlooked at the time of the removal, end quote, reported Oscar B. Hunter, Jr., M.D., The investigation and its findings attracted nation attention, and the West Virginia legislator held two hearings on the case in 1950 afterwards. However, Governor Oki L. Patterson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett ruled the Sauter's case was hopeless and closed it at the state level. The FBI decided it has jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case after two years of following fruitless leads. With all official efforts to solve the case coming to an end, the Sauter family did not give up hope. They have flyers printed with pictures of the children offering a $5,000 reward for any information that would solve the case. In 1952, the Sauters put up a billboard at the site of the house that read, What was their fate? Kidnapped? Murdered? Or are they still alive? 
$5,000 reward, and another along US Route 60 near Anstead with the same information. It would end up becoming a landmark for traffic through Fayetteville on US Route 19, known as today State Route 16. Now we know we dropped a bombshell sighting of the kids earlier in the episode. Don't worry, we are going to tell you about Ida Crutchfield's sighting of the children. With the billboards being put up, Ida Crutchfield came forward with her reported sighting. Ida was working at the Alderson Hotel in Charleston, West Virginia. She claimed to have seen the children approximately a week after the fire. In her statement, she said, quote, I did see four of the Sodder children in my hotel the immediate week following December 25, 1945. The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. To the best of my knowledge, I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stay in room 25, which is a large room with several beds. They registered between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to the children. After registering the people, I made a friendly remark to the small boy. He answered me, and one of the older women began to talk to me. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, so I said nothing else. They left early the next morning. At the time, I had not heard of the Sodder Fire. In August of 1946, a young man who seemed to be of Italian origin came to the Alderson Hotel accompanied by a small boy, whom he said was his ward. He stayed in room 8 for two days and three nights. The child was not allowed out of his sight. On reflection, I realized that this was the same one that had been here in winter before. I still did not connect those occurrences with the solder case until I saw the pictures in the paper. I did see three solder girls and the young solder boy Lewis once, and I did see the youngest boy a second time. I do not remember seeing the older boy. End quote. Investigators still to this day do not consider her story credible, as she had only first seen the photo of the children two years after the fire, five years before she came forward. Seven months after Ida Crutchfield's statement was taken, Jenny Sauter wrote a letter to Governor W.C. Marlin asking for more help from the state police. Now that Superintendent Burchett had resigned, she said, Dear Mr. Marlin, after eight years of police service, I see that Mr. W.E. Burchett resigned. For all that he has done for me, I wish he had resigned seven years ago. He said he wanted to stay on the job and stop crimes. If he didn't stop crimes or investigate them better than he did my case, we gave him because a arson and a kidnap case here in Fayette County. 
because some criminal set my house on fire, then kidnapped five of my ten children in the year 1945. <clears throat> we have a sign affidavit that the immediate week following December 1945, my children were accompanied by two men and two women. They stayed one night at a hotel in Charleston, West Virginia in the month of August 1946. A young man accompanied my small son, who he said was his ward, stay in the same hotel the first time. Yes, Mr. Marlin, the criminal sleep and rest right in our state capital. Three hearings have been forced in Mr. Burchett's office, but what has Mr. Burchett done? Nothing. He did not even try to investigate, and as for Mr. Patterson, or our fire marshal, Mr. Raper, they have done no more than Mr. Burchett. Why are they hiding from the truth? They know very well this crime has been committed, but we are not going to give up looking for them. After all, we should get some justice. Mr. Marlin, you and Mrs. Marlin have children, and I know you love them more than anything in the world. I hope you can understand how we feel. There will be no rest until we find out what they did to my children. I appreciate hearing from you. Thank you, Mrs. George Sauter. As usual, the response was the same. Dear Mrs. Sauter, I have read your letter of February 13th in which you make charges relative to inaction of certain law enforcement officials sometime in 1945. I am sorry to advise that there is in no way in which I can help you in this matter, but it is in my sincere hope that in time you will be reunited with your children. With best wishes, I am. Sincerely, William C. Marland, Governor. With this letter, all hope for the final chance at reopening the case for a formal investigation was over. George Sauter never gave up hope on finding his children. He would travel to wherever a lead would come from. Traveling to St. Louis, Missouri, where a woman claimed Martha was being held in a convent. To Texas, where a bar patron claimed to have overheard two other people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years before. George even traveled to Florida, where he heard that a relative of Jenny's had children that looked similar to his. The relative had to prove that the children were his own before George was satisfied. In 1967, George traveled to the Houston area to investigate another tip. A woman there had written a letter to the Sauters saying that Louis had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Morris were both living somewhere in Texas. However, George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, were unable to speak to the woman. Police in the Houston area were able to help them find these two men she had indicated, but they denied being missing sons. Paxton said years later that the doubts about the denial lingered in George's mind for the rest of his life. 
Another letter that they received that year brought the Sodders to believe the most credible evidence that at least Louis was still alive. One day, Jenny found a letter in the mail addressed to her, postmarked in central Kentucky with no return address. Inside was a picture of a young man around 30 with features strongly resembling Louis, who would have been in his 30s if he had survived. On the back was written, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, little boys, A90132 or 35263. To us and everyone else, the picture of the man in his 30s does look like the grown version of Louis. You can see the images on our website to make your own decision. The family hired another private investigator to go to Central City and look into this, but he never reported back to the Sodders and they were unable to locate him afterwards. George told the Charleston Gazette Mail late the next year, quote, that the lack of information had been like hitting a rock wall. We can't go any further, end quote. He said in another interview around the same time, quote, but we only want to know if they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced otherwise. We want to know what happened to them, end quote. On August 16, 1969, George Sauter passed away. Jenny and her surviving children, except John, who never talked about that night of the fire, except to say that the family should accept what happened and move on with their lives, continued to seek answers to their questions about the missing children. After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up a fence around it and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black in mourning and tended to the garden at the site of the former home. On February 15, 1989, Jenny Sauter passed away. After her death, the family finally took down the weathered worn billboards. Their surviving Sauter children, joined by their own children, continued to publicize the case and investigate leads. Along with older residents of Fayetteville, they theorized that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extort money from George and the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said that they would be safe if they left the house. They could have possibly been taken back to Italy if the children did survive all those years and were aware that their parents and family were looking for them, they may have avoided contact to keep the family safe. In 2021, Sylvia Sauter Paxton, the youngest of the surviving Sauter children, passed away. She was in the house the night of the fire, which she said is her earliest memory. Quote, I was the last one of the kids to leave home, end quote. She said in an interview with the Gazette Mail in 2013 that her and her father would often stay up late talking about what might have happened. Quote, I experienced their grief for a long time, end quote. She believed that her siblings survived that night 
and assisted with efforts to find them and publicize the case. Her daughter, Jenny, said in 2006, quote, she promised my grandparents she wouldn't let the story die, that she would do everything she could, end quote. If you visit George and Jenny's grave at the High Lawn Memorial Park in Oak Hill, West Virginia, you will notice another name on the grave. In 1950, Jenny had a stillborn birth to Michael Sauter. On the grave, you will also see, quote, who believes in justice for everyone, but was denied justice by the law when his five children were kidnapped Christmas Eve, 1945, at Fayetteville, West Virginia. In 2023, the story of the Sauters has not faded out for anyone in West Virginia or the world. Everyone still has their own theories. Some of those theories go to the Mafia, the Tennessee Children's Home Society, which we will be doing a future episode on, human trafficking, the bubble theory, the list can go on and on. No matter who you talk to, everyone knows the case of the Sauter children. If you have any information on the case of the Sauter children, email us at mountainstatemysteries304 at gmail.com. Next time on Mountain State Mysteries, we're going to tell you the story of a woman who went missing in Charleston, West Virginia in 1979. If you find yourself enjoying Mountain State Mysteries, take a second to follow, download, and rate it on your favorite podcasting service. It helps others find Mountain State Mysteries. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, comment and let us know what you think of the Sauter case. If you follow us on Spotify, we will have a comment section on this episode. For the show notes, check out our website, mountainstatemysteriespodcast.com.